This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Hey, good morning. Happy Monday. Hope your day is off to a great start. My name is Scott Schantz, filling in for Mike Smith, and uh, we're going to get things started right away. So it seemed for a while there that uh, we had gotten ahead of these trucks hitting overpasses. It has happened 10 times this year so far, and it had kind of like, it felt like maybe it had slowed down during the summer. The idea of trucks hitting overpasses, even needing to slow down, is just absolutely insane to me. But then earlier this month, a truck hit an overpass in North Vancouver, and the driver fled. We still don't know who he is. We still don't know where he is. He fled. But obviously the company that employs this guy knows where he is, right? The company Whistler Courier and Freightway. So these guys had their license suspended for a week. Okay. So no trucking from Whistler Courier and Freightway. And now they've been given a fine, probably a pretty big fine, you would think, right? No, 3,500 bucks, $3,500 for a huge disruption and also like no response, no real response to this. Does this bother you as much as it bothers me? Uh, Trevor Halford is here. He's the BC United MLA and Shadow Minister Transporta- Shadow Minister of Transportation. Excuse me. Thanks so much for being here, Trevor. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me, Scott. How does this make you feel? Are you as bothered by it as I am? Well, yeah. I, I, listen, we we've been bothered by this for for two years now, right? Like two years, we have had. 24 overpass strikes. Um, like one a month, for, right? That's one a month. I, I, yeah. Well, yeah, my math isn't as good as yours, but yes, <laughs> that, that works out to one a month. Um, but, but listen, as I, I grew up in British Columbia, I, for the life of me, cannot remember ever hearing on the news about an overpass strike. I'm sure it probably happened once in a blue moon. But to have, it, you know, one a month is, uh, is, is absolutely crazy. And, you know, this isn't, like I said, the, the case that you just referenced now, um, this isn't something where the minister has gone off and talked about. He's had now 23 previous examples to actually bring in legislation and make this tougher, to actually give some teeth to fines, to actually make companies feel the consequences. 99.9% of the drivers out there do an incredible job getting us our goods, our services, our foods, uh, and trucking in a very safe way. It is the most minuscule percentage that is that is not properly prepared in driving dangerously. What we like what we've seen twenty four times now. So for him to now say that you know they've doled out the toughest fines they possibly can and legislation may be coming in the fall, I think that's I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And I think this minister needs to step up and do his job. Um, and actually put some teeth behind this legislation. Yeah, let's have a quick listen, actually. This is uh, Troy Charles from Global News uh, talking about uh, transportation safety. A $3,500 fine and a seven-day suspension. 
That's what it cost Squamish-based Whistler Courier and Freightways after one of their trucks struck the Main Street overpass on Highway 1, causing major delays. The driver of the truck also fled the scene. The Ministry of Transportation confirmed that after an investigation, the company's suspension was lifted on September 27th. In a statement, the ministry said the carrier had to submit an action plan to address all areas of non-compliance found during the investigation, as well as a plan to ensure any future oversized loads would be transported safely. And here now is uh, the current B.C. Transportation Minister, Rob Fleming, talking about what we need to do to get these overpass hits down. It's never been easier to comply. It's never been easier to use our highways safely, and yet uh, we have had... Uh, 10 overpass strikes uh, in a year, and uh, we need to get that down to zero. So, yeah, it sounds like he is aware of the issue, but yeah. yet it just it seems to, to just keep on happening. And it feels to me, oh. at least, Trevor, that when you hear like a $3,500 fine, like I picture a trucking and freightway company that that like that's minuscule, right? $3,500. Yeah. Well, listen, my response to Minister Fleming, with all due respect, is that it's never been easier to start putting in legislation that's going to enforce and have tougher fines and penalties. Right. Like, what would that um, what would that look like? What should be a fine for something like this? More than thirty five hundred. Well, absolutely. I think you have to take into consideration many things. I think number one is is that you know the infrastructure that's been hit. Um, you know, if you go along Highway ninety nine, there the overpass there, just outside the tunnel when you're going south. That's still that that a lot of that is still unusable, right? Um, it's still cordoned off, and so you know you're talking about delays every day for commuters, damage. So those aren't just in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're talking millions of dollars of damage. Um, So, you know, I I think at some point people need to wake up and understand that if they are going to take these risks on the road, then there's going to be severe consequences. And I I don't know what those numbers should look like, but I guarantee you this, it needs to be more than $3,500. And to, to say that, um, you know, they're going to do a one-week a one action plan. Well, that that's not going to have a lot of people shaking in their boots. So, again, um, you know, this minister is going to talk tough. He's got to back it up with action. He's had two years to do it, and we've seen nothing from him, absolutely nothing. So... Um, if he's going to handle this file like BC Ferries, then we're in for big trouble. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like that when it just continually keeps happening. Like you, Trevor, I grew up in the Lower Mainland. I grew up in Abbotsford and never remember stories like this. And it just seems like all of a sudden it just keeps happening. And like you say, a one-week fine. And the fact that we still don't know who the driver responsible is, I mean, I'm sure that the company has dealt with it, but they know who, who this person is. They're obviously not complying with, you know, investigators who are trying to figure it out and still it feels like they're getting off easy right for the life of me and thank uh you know we thank our lucky stars that there's been no fatalities with this because i you've seen some of the videos of this happening and oh my god are they are they dramatic but um you know at some point we're not going to be that lucky and you know i i can tell you that if if people are looking at thirty five hundred dollar fines and a some kind of weak action plan that I, i don't even know what that means um, if that's all we're getting from our Minister of Transportation, then uh, we may need a new minister because we actually have to get serious about this. And right now, he clearly is not. Doesn't feel like it. Uh, Trevor Halford, he's a BC United MLA and Shadow Minister of Transportation. Thanks so much for your time this morning. I, I appreciate you weighing in. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it.
But good morning and welcome to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Schantz. I'm filling in today and tomorrow for Mike. And we're talking about intersections in Vancouver that are unsafe. My guest is Cheng Yan Boon. He's a member of Vision Zero Vancouver. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Can you explain what Vision Zero Vancouver is and, and what you do? Yeah, uh, we're, a, we're a volunteer group uh, that uh, dreams about a world with uh, zero traffic fatalities or serious injuries. Um, we're not alone in the world. There's uh, many groups like us in many cities around, and especially uh, uh, groups in uh, Oslo and places like that have actually achieved a lot of success, and we're trying to replicate that here. Okay, fantastic. And you guys have done some work to identify uh, which intersections in the Lower Mainland that Vancouverites think are the most unsafe. How did you guys come up with this information and uh, d- determine which ones people feel are unsafe? Uh, so we, we had a, a booth at uh, the Main Street and Denman Street car-free days, and one of our ways to engage people coming by was to invite them to put a pin on our uh, corkboard map uh, where they felt uh, unsafe, had a close call, or were in a crash themselves. Um, so lots of people had lots of experiences. Actually, for Main Street, a lot of people had just passed by a crash at Broadway and Kingsway um, where they had described uh, someone bleeding out on the road. And said, well, I came by one on my way here and actually I don't have to dig very deep to find it. And it's actually pretty, um, pretty easy, uh, given that 7,000 crash injuries happen uh, every year and get treated at Vancouver Hospital. So that's like 20 a day. So every day they're they're happening so it wasn't hard to find one yeah no kidding so you there's multiple intersections right you mentioned that broadway and kingsway are there like can you identify some of the other ones that are kind of more of the like major hot spots yeah um there was some bias towards where we were at the at the time but main and seventh was one that a lot of people had a lot of uh, issues with um the generally downtown Georgia Street, there was a big line of, of, of groups, and that actually lines up quite well with ICBC uh, crash data, which Georgia is definitely the uh, street with the most crashes in all of downtown. Um, and uh, for drivers themselves, uh, there was this big hot spot at uh, 49th and Fraser where, um, where there's just a lot of left turns and uh, wide roads, and uh, a lot of people kind of put the pin in the exact same spot right there. Uh, let's see. And then, um, Grandview, Grandview highway was a big one for, for cyclists because they can't really cross the street at Broadway. And so, uh, because there's no light there at Victoria. Sure. And yeah. so, so a lot of cyclists put pins right there because, uh, they, they just couldn't find a way across and have to kind of risk their lives every time they do it. Okay. So you mentioned that there are other cities, um, that are working on this and that, you know, do, do some of the same work. How does Vancouver compare to, you know, like other cities in Canada, other cities in North America in terms of the amount of like fatalities and accidents that we have are, are like, are other cities as bad as us, or are we considerably worse? Where do we net out there? Uh, we do. Okay. Uh, we, I think we are, Montreal does slightly better than us, uh, but um, but we're but compared to say like Portland, which has um, has like five times as many as us, or four four or five times as many as us, uh, uh, we we do okay because we've had historically a lot of progress on this front in Vancouver. Uh, but one one thing that we do sort of want to highlight is that uh, back in uh, t- 2012 was when we started to kind of 
uh, find a find a low, and we had a we had a low amount of fatalities for for five six years. But then back in 2021, it just jumped right back up to the level that was back in 2012, and we're just a little bit concerned about the trend line that's been going down and down and down for 20, 30 years, but is starting to go up again. Sure. Do you know why that is? Why, why do we think that it's going back up again? Um, part of it is uh, the, the size of cars on our road. Uh, a lot of people are starting to buy SUVs and pickup trucks and very large vehicles that have a higher chance of fatalities when they strike people. Um, and uh, they, they are, have been consistently the most uh, popular and bought cars uh, for for the past number of years, and large cars, tall cars, uh, really, uh, and heavy cars really transfer a lot of momentum when they hit uh, people and have kind of terrible sight lines and uh, uh, are more likely to cause fatalities uh, and injuries. Okay, so and I, I agree with that. I've seen that that data before. That you know we have these bigger cars. There, people, especially when you're transitioning from a smaller vehicle, you're not necessarily aware of um, how much space you're actually taking up. It's easier to clip, uh, you know, clip an intersection or clip a person or clip a wall. We see that all the time. That makes perfect sense. But aside from trying to convince people to drive different vehicles, like how how are we supposed to make this better? What would you like to see the city or the province? What what type of action can we do to to improve um, these type of incidents and like lower that number back down? Yeah, uh, there's actually a lot of things that can be done, uh, and uh, traffic engineers are quite aware of them. Even even in Vancouver, a lot of it has to do with just getting speeds down. And you know, a lot of people decry speed limits, but actually they do help a little bit, and they're pretty cheap to implement. And the nicest thing about changing speed limits on the road to say 30 kilometers an hour, which brings the chance of fatality down from like 90% from 50% uh, from 50 kilometers an hour to 10% for 30 kilometers an hour upon being struck is that then the engineers start to design the road like it's for 30, 30 kilometers an hour, which means that they'll put in all those measures that they deem appropriate for the street, which might be traffic calming. It might be um, narrowing the road or, or raised sidewalks or things that, uh, I mean, raised crossings or wider sidewalks or things like that uh, making streets uh, feel safer and also actually feel um, better to drive on slowly and better to walk on. Uh, And uh, all that can be done uh, every time roads get resurfaced, every time uh, the city identifies a place as a big hotspot for crashes as well. Okay. And how much of the responsibility for this stuff actually should be on drivers, drivers who dri- decide to drive bigger cars and maybe aren't getting the proper amount of, um, I don't know, ed- driving education, you know, is, is part of the responsibility there as well? Well, uh, we at Vision Zero definitely feel that engineering is always uh, going to be the best way to approach this. Uh, people are always going to make mistakes. Uh, this is the case in 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 every city in the world and the cities in the world that have actually achieved a measure of success in getting this number down to zero or close to it have done so by implementing the proper infrastructure and it doesn't even have to be places like Oslo, like Hoboken in New York. So even in North America has been able to do it for a number of years, achieve uh, zero fatalities. And uh, that was uh, with very simple things, just like curb extensions and, 
getting speech down. Sure. And, and in yeah. those in those places, does it does it affect traffic? Do things take? Does it take longer to get places? Does traffic feel busier? And I, I mean, I acknowledge that there's going to have to be a trade off at, at some point. But are drivers more frustrated because now it just feels like the the speed limits are slower? Um, we have to you know go in through these traffic calmed intersections and stuff. Mm-hmm. Does, is there a frustration like a trade off there? What what a lot of uh, cities that have implemented these measures have found is that typically, especially in cities, busy cities that have lots of complicated intersections, shops, people walking about, um, it's it's very rare for for the average speed of a car to reach over 30 kilometers an hour anyway. And actually, what tends to get people to their destination uh, is is their average speed. And so, whereas the peaks of of their speed on a higher interest, uh, higher um, speed limit road may uh, may be slightly higher. Their average speed doesn't really go up all that much, and so usually the difference can be measured in seconds. Like less, hmm. like eighteen seconds was, I think, uh, the average that that I found recently. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's really not a huge trade-off. And actually, at Vision Zero, we feel that that you can't really um you the that cost benefit causes always causes causes government to make the wrong choices in this respect hmm, um, yeah and that uh the the goal is really zero fatality zero in, injuries and it is very possible and the places that have done it have not seen traffic chaos fantastic cheng yan boon he's a member of vision zero vancouver they're seeking to uh lower and ultimately um eliminate traffic fatalities in vancouver thanks so much for your time this morning i appreciate it uh, thank you many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Shantz filling in today and tomorrow. 604-280-9898. That's the number for the open line, and I think... People are going to be a little bit upset when they hear about this story. So if you want to call and weigh in, please do. Have you heard of an organization called DULF? DULF, that's spelled D-U-L-F. It stands for the Drug User Liberation Front. So I'll let you sort of process and digest that. And these people, the Drug Users Liberation Front, have apparently received $200,000 in funding from our provincial government to test illegal street drugs and then sell them or give them back. Now, as obviously we have a drug issue in our city and in our province. It's uh, it's 
it's pretty out there. If you live in the city, you've seen it. If you live in the valley, you've also probably seen it. And I do agree that we do need some like testing systems for drugs and, you know, uh, opioid crisis. It's terrible anytime someone loses their life. It's a complicated problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about this a lot. We're going to get into it more a bit now. But first, let's hear from the Dolph co-founder. His name is Jerry Calicum. And uh, th- this is him talking about the black market being the only option. It's only only to make people's lives better and our communities better and safer. Like we're we're not under under no kind of you know presumption that buying off the black market is a good thing. Like all in all, but it's the only option that we have. Okay, so here now to help us kind of unpack and understand a little bit more is Eleanor Sturko. She's a BC United MLA for Surrey South and a former RCMP officer. Thanks so much for being here, Eleanor. Always appreciate getting to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So I want to make sure that I really, really do understand this. So this group was given $200,000 by our provincial government to try to take some drugs off the street, test them and make sure that they were safe, and then get them back into the hands of drug users. Is that correct? Well, you know, it's a little bit slightly different from what you're saying. And what the issue is, what we're wanting to raise is that, so this organization, the Drug Users Liberation Front, along with the Vancouver Network of uh, Drug Users, VanDu, together received $1.2 million. Okay, so 200000 going directly to the Drug Users Liberation Front. And those individuals wanted to do a study, a study about a compassion club model. They had applied for a license to Health Canada, were denied. So instead, they went ahead with that study with the support of the government, with the support of the BC Centre on Substance Use. They used cryptocurrency to buy drugs off of the dark web. So from organized crime, so purchasing drugs illegally and then selling those drugs um, to people or giving them away through their uh, organization. So the idea of testing drugs and, and using um, equipment <laughs> so, to make sure that drugs are safe is fine. Can but I, it's the fact that... I just want to say, so it's, it's not exactly as I described it. It's actually much, much worse than that. <laughs> well, and I think so. I mean, we came with, you know, Scott, this is the part that's so egregious to me, is that just over a week ago, we lost a police officer who was killed in the line of duty yes. investigating investigating drugs, okay? And now we have a government on the other side that they have supported organizations, both FANDU and the Drug Users Liberation Front to the tune of $1.2 million, and those organizations themselves have purchased drugs from the black market, putting money and guns into the hands of people who have killed British Columbians, and we, you know, our tax money was used for this. This is disgusting. It's not about testing drugs. That's fine. Test drugs. We want to save people. But the fact that tax money would go into the black market and support those who have killed British Columbians and the harms and put on people, inflicted on people through organized crime in the history of our province is absolutely disgusting. Yes, absolutely. And I, like, I'll just, I have more than happy to go on the record saying that I am extremely compassionate towards people who have drug addiction and addiction issues. I understand that there is a huge mental health component there. I think that we are like, yes, the opioid crisis is a terrible thing. All of that. I'm extremely sympathetic to that. I think we need creative solutions. But the idea that, so they, they applied to, to, to Health Canada to have something like this and uh, got denied through a, like an actual process, which is how we run things in a, in a democratic society like this, and the provincial government still gave them the money. 
Well, and the other part of it that's even, you know, also egregious is the fact that so they got denied the license. So when, when this founder of Dolph, when this creator of this project says that they had no alternative, where well, there is an alternative. If they had done it properly, waited until they could obtain a license, they could have actually then got pharmaceutical alternatives to the drugs that they were selling. So instead of putting money and you know into the hands of organized criminals and supporting gangs actually in British Columbia and around the world, they could have applied for a license, but they were denied. There was probably some logistical reasons, or maybe they needed to make some changes to the testing. But then through the center, you know, they also received support through the BC Center on Substance Use, which is the policy advisor and primary study provider. For the BC government. So, you know, we have the director of research at the BC Center on Substance Use helping in a situation where they're actually committing crime and then trying to use the information garnered through an unethical study in order to affect policy change in the province of British Columbia. It's wrong. It's like dining on the fruit of the poison tree. We can't be relying on a path forward and research that's obtained through illegal activity. It's just not right. It's unethical. And, you know, frankly, I think that Premier Eby needs to answer for what's happened. Yeah, certainly. So let me just, because I want to make sure I understand, like you mentioned that they they purchased these this large amount of drugs off the dark web, which is like an unregulated internet where you can find essentially anything. And are we assuming that this was like through organized crime? I mean, how else would you get them, right? Or, or do we have like hard evidence or uh, it's just, it's kind of like, the dark web is where organized crime happens, so that's where they would have obtained these drugs? If they were able to have obtained these drugs with a license from uh, help... Oh, sorry. A pharmaceutical alternative. Okay. Sorry. Oh, you dropped out for a second there. If they were able to obtain oh, these drugs... Yeah, sorry. If they were able to obtain these drugs from a legitimate source, they would have needed to have a license. Right. Any other way of obtaining those drugs would have been an unlicensed and illicit source. And I'll tell you from my experience as a police officer, you can get anything on the dark web, which includes things like child pornography, um, human trafficking, guns, other kinds of weapons. It funds terrorism. It funds organized crime. And so pouring any amount of money into the dark web is funding any of these and perhaps all of these types of activities. It's unacceptable for the government of British Columbia, whether their money was used to provide those drugs or or to buy the cryptocurrency that bought those three kilograms of drugs or not. They are supporting and propping up organizations that are involved in criminal activity. And that's what not taxpayers would expect their that their own money would be used for ethical and legal purposes. You bet. Yep, Yep, absolutely. It does seem quite shocking. Uh, Just in the couple of minutes that we have left, because I'd I'd love to try to, like, sort of steer it this way, what, and I get that it's an extremely complicated issue, what should we be doing? What should the federal government and the provincial government and local municipalities be doing about opioid crisis, testing drugs, um, making... Uh, dealing with these addictions of uh, dealing with these issues of addiction and mental mental health what should we be doing well i can tell you that you know what in terms of drug testing it's extremely important but 1.2 million dollars would have bought a lot more drug testing equipment that could have been um, just you know put in all kinds of different locations where people are using drugs for example in my own community at the peace arch hospital there is a supervised consumption site that drug testing but i know that in the five days that it's open so it's not open every day not open 24 hours a day but they only have access to the drug testing equipment 
one out of five days a week. So $1.2 million could have bought a lot more of this equipment, could have went to actual not criminal organizations, and could have been provided to other organizations that want to help that are not involved in criminal activity. So I just think, you know, we do need to do things like helping people test their drugs, you know, helping people have better access to opioid agonist therapy and to have count of housing and to have higher barrier housing so that when people do get clean, that they have an opportunity to have that sobriety protected as we continue to support them in their, in their recovery. But certainly, you know, um, even if we want to look at other models, these kinds of research projects need to be done legally and ethically. And the fact that our BC government went ahead to support an organization and even through the BCCSU, who now, you know, you have to wonder, how can we trust any of the research done by this organization right. when they would be involved in such an unethical study, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, it certainly is. Eleanor Sturkle, she's a BC United MLA for Surrey South, also a former RCMP officer, definitely knows a thing or two about this. Always great to get your input. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it this morning. Yeah. Scott, thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Chance with you today, filling in, and we're talking about airlines and airline compensation. Uh, the government has said that after all of the, you know, flight delays and distractions and lost bags and cancellations and huge mess that we've gone through in recent years, that compensation is going to have to be there for people whose flights get canceled. Makes sense, right? If you pay all this money, you rely on the airline to get you to your place. They don't get you there. They got to compensate you. Now airlines are saying, well, this is not actually going to work for us. Obviously, they don't like it because it eats into their profits, but they're starting to say other things like maybe this is not the best thing. Maybe it's not safe. Maybe it's not going to work for us the way that you want it to work. And it's going to become a bit of an issue. So here to sort of help us unpack that is Duncan D. He's been on this show several times. He's a former COO of Air Canada and very in the know about this stuff. Thanks so much for being here again, Duncan. We really appreciate your time. Great to be with you. Okay. How do you feel about uh, airlines? Obviously, uh, were you surprised by this, that airlines are like pushing back on, on some of these new compensation rules? I'm not uh, surprised uh, one bit because I think that the system in Canada is just so broken in terms of uh, the way air travelers are, are treated. The extremely uh, bad examples we've had over the last couple of years of travelers just being so badly inconvenienced. Air travel just has not really come back to any form of normalcy since the pandemic. And, you know, things are just not really improving uh, fast enough. And so I'm not surprised that the airlines are pushing back because the airlines are the ones that have been singled out for uh, punishment by the government while they're completely ignoring the role of all of the other players in the air transportation system. Okay. And who, who would those players be? Like, give us an example, just as a person who's not super familiar with air transportation, you know, I, I go on planes, that's it. Go to the airport, go on the airplane. Who would those other players be? Well, I think folks traveling out of YVR this summer, uh, er, especially early on in the summer, would have experienced that firsthand when NAV Canada, the air traffic control okay, provider, yeah, yeah. Basic, uh, basically uh, was unable to uh, maintain uh, the air traffic control system in an adequate way. So flights were being held at the gate or being held before they could even arrive so that uh, they could catch up to the delays that were being caused by a lack of staff. So air traffic control is one of them. You got, you've got the same situation 
last summer with the uh, air security agency, CATSA, <clears throat> where you had uh, flights that were being held because they weren't clearing travelers quickly enough through the security checkpoints. And, you know, the list goes on and on, Scott. And, and what we're seeing in Canada is the focus solely on the airlines to compensate, to apologize, to make things better without looking at any of the other players in the system that are equally responsible for some of the situations that travelers have uh, faced over the last couple of years. So now is this because we look at airlines like Air Canada and WestJet, for example, and we see them as uh, publicly traded, uh, profitable, um, b- big companies, you know, worth billions and billions of dollars. That's not what I think about when I think of Nav Canada. I understand that Nav Canada would be subsidized by a, a different you know, spectrum of people, but they're not like making money, uh, selling a, a product. They're like a, a side organization. Is that is that why we're targeting airlines specifically, or we feel okay targeting airlines? Scott, I think that that's a great point. And, you know, the reason why we do that is obviously because travelers buy their ticket from the airlines. Yeah. They're not buying air navigation services directly from uh, Nav Canada. They're not buying security service directly from CATSA. It's all inside the ticket price that they're paying the airlines. And so that's absolutely a great point. But the difficulty is Canadians pay the highest air navigation charges on the planet. They also pay the highest air security charges on the planet. They pay the highest airport improvement fees on the planet. And when you have all of those different elements where Canadians are paying through the nose for these services, and these services are what's causing these delays and cancellations to a large degree, not 100% of the time, but let's say at least 30, 40, 50% of the time, you've got a situation that's really gotten out of control in Canada, where the sole focus is on the airlines, on the airline employees, you know, the pilots that are operating these flights to make things better without looking at all the other members of the air transportation system, which have a role to play to make sure that travelers get to their destinations on time, safely, and conveniently. Right. So should the government be uh, pressuring those organizations as well? Or is the the hope kind of just that, because like you say, the cost of those other organizations is built into the airline ticket. So it's like, look, we put pressure on the airline and the airline then puts pressure on Nav Canada for not, you know, being ready to to handle those planes being in the air or, or CATSA for not being able to move people through fast enough. Like who's, whose responsibility is it for all of these organizations to get on the same page? Look, I mean, we saw a situation last year in the United States where you had air navigation uh, provider, the air navigation provider in the U.S., the FAA, um, facing significant difficulty. You had um, the entire uh, Christmas travel period uh, in the U.S., which was chaotic. And so what happened there was the U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, took charge, got things under control. He basically quarterbacked uh, a recovery and how the uh, situation should get back on track. And things are largely, they're not 100% as to where they should be, but they're they're somewhat better. In Canada, we have a federal government that has almost washed its, washed its hands off of this um, situation. You have the federal minister of transport, the former federal minister of transport, Uh, who used to put out these uh, tweets where he was claiming that things are better, flights are on time, but his definition of on time is a flight arriving at the destination within one hour of schedule. So, you know, you're great for a traveler who's not, uh, who doesn't mind being at least an hour delayed for the federal government to define their flight as being on time. But, you know, you've got a U.S. transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, who's 
quarterbacking results, and you have a Canadian transport minister, the former transport minister, who was making making excuses for the uh, failures of the system. So, you know, you've got to get to some degree of leadership in Canada so we can get through the situation and travelers can get back to flying on time, conveniently, and with fewer inconveniences than they have experienced over the last couple of years. Okay. And do you agree, Duncan, that like when, when things happen, no matter whose fault it is, whether it's any of the organizations that we've talked about, including the airlines, passengers should be compensated, right? Or is there a place where, you know, because I I know that some people have this attitude of, well, the airline will compensate me. It doesn't matter if I'm late. It doesn't matter if I miss my flight. Is there a space where, um, the, the client, the traveler takes some takes some of the responsibility here. Well, look, I mean, uh, number one, travelers deserve to get what they paid for, and they paid for a flight that leaves on time, arrives on time, and is safe. Uh, and so, if the airlines are unable to provide that, for sure, travelers deserve to be compensated. At the same time, airlines should have the right to go after the NAB Canada's, the CATSAs, the airport authorities, all of the other members of the air transportation system if the situation that is is being experienced by the traveler the delay or the cancellation is caused by those agencies right now airlines have no recourse they cannot withhold uh, their landing fees from airports if airports screw up they can't withhold their air navigation fees from nav canada if nav canada screws up and they certainly can't uh, withhold the uh, significant charges that travelers pay for air security if CATSA screws up So the only folks left holding the bag are your airlines, and that's really just not good enough, especially when you have a federal government that has so far been unable to get its hands on the situation and get it back under control. Right. And so where's the incentive for any of those other organizations to improve when the airline has to just keep paying no matter what? I totally get that. Very complicated. So are things going to get worse here before they get better? Look, I don't think they're going to get any worse because, you know, the summer of 2022, Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver airports topped the global charts for delays. I mean, you know, what other Canadian um, uh, cities top the global charts uh, for anything? But, you know, the three largest airports that we had were the number one, the number two and the number 10 worst delayed airports on the planet in summer 2022. I don't think that that's what what happened for the summer of 2023. Things did get somewhat better, but it's still far from where we were pre-pandemic. So things are improving, things are getting better, but they still are a long way to, we have a long way to go before we get to a point where we can say that travelers are getting what they pay for in this country. Duncan D, he's a former COO of Air Canada and an expert on the aviation industry. Thanks so much for your time today. Always appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.